have you ever wondered why America is so much richer than Mexico? I mean, there's a very famous satellite photo of a, a town on the border between Mexico and America. And on one side, people have you know, relatively um, high levels of poverty. Um, the, the country's not particularly well run. On the other side of the boundary, incomes are much higher. There's much greater prosperity. Life chances are so much better, actually, that people try to move from one side of that border to the other. But it's not just why is America richer than Mexico. Have you ever wondered why Texas is richer than Mississippi? Um, these are some of the questions I want us to start to begin to answer. Um, on the graph, on the chart behind me, there's a table, and it shows the richest countries in the world. Now, some of these countries are so small, you may not have even heard of them. You may not have heard of the Isle of Man. It's a tiny little speck of land between the United Kingdom and Ireland, but it is actually a sovereign country, and I think it's had a second oldest parliament in the world, I think. It's been going for nearly a 1,000 years. Um, but looking at this, this is a list of the richest countries in the world. Now, to be clear, when I say richest countries in the world, that's not to say that these are the countries with the biggest economies. This is the wealth relative to the number of people in those countries. So it's the per person, the per capita, we call it, the per person wealth. And you'll notice that Monaco up there is so wealthy that in US dollar terms, each person, the output in that economy is about a quarter of a million dollars. It, it's super, super, super wealthy, that tiny little country. Now, there are about 190 countries around the world. So this is just a list of the richest 30. Um, and what I, what I would ask you to do is to tell me, what, what do you notice about this list? What is it about these 30 countries that explains why they're rich? Can, can anyone, would anyone like to make any guesses looking at that? Why are these countries, what is it about these countries that makes them rich? Can y'all see it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> The way their government is set up. You're, you're too good. I was hoping someone. I was hoping someone would say that. I mean, that's. You're, you're starting to get there. You're starting to get there. Um, quite often, when people look at this graph, they see Qatar and they say they make lots of oil, don't they? Norway, they've got lots of oil, and people will say things like oil. I mean, actually, one of, one, of, one of the first things to notice about this is that most of these countries are really small, and I think this is a really profound and important point. Small countries are overrepresented on this list of wealthy countries. But there's one striking exception. Of the top 15 richest countries in the world, all of them are small countries, with the sole exception of the United States of America. And Switzerland has a population of about 9 million, Norway has one of about 7 million, but all the rest are tiny, you know, Singapore, Ireland, Bermuda. But there's one exception, the United States. Now, part of that is because the United States is, if you like, because of the way it's structured, 50 Singapore's, 50 Norway's. It is the United States. It, it, it is a, if you like, a collection of smaller units. So I, I, I think one of the first things when you look at this list of the richest countries in the world and you start to consider what is it that makes a country wealthy, I think one of the first things to notice is that the United States is exceptional. It stands out. It, it's different it doesn't fit the pattern that all the others fit. 
almost all the other big countries in the world, Indonesia, China, Nigeria, <coughs> Brazil, they would be way down that list. The United States is different. There is something about the way it's, it's organized. The second thing I think to think when asking what makes a country rich is that, you know, if you talk to people often in, do they teach geography? Is, is geography what they call it? Geography? If you, if you talk to a geography student, quite often, or a geography teacher, often a geography teacher, because so often, not all geography teachers, but a lot of geography teachers preach a sort of leftist orthodoxy without realizing it. Geography teachers will often tell you that the reason why a country is rich is because of oil. And they will point to some of these oil-rich countries and say, you know, Kuwait, Qatar, Norway, that's why they're rich. But hang on, Nigeria produces far more oil than many of these countries, and Nigeria is way at the bottom of the list. Having lots of mineral wealth under your feet doesn't explain why a country is rich. Zaire, the Congo in, in, in Africa, is phenomenally well endowed with natural resources, and yet it's economically a, a basket case. So it can't be... What makes a country rich can't be explained by natural resources. It, it can't be explained by the climate either. Often people will say, the reason why a country is rich is because it's got a good climate. Well, Greenland, Iceland, I challenge anyone to find a worse climate, a more inhospitable climate to live in than, than some of these countries. It's, it's not the climate that explains why a country is rich. It's, it's not geography either. Um, sometimes people will assume that the reason why one country is rich is because, you know, geography. Well, Finland um, is a phenomenally successful country, but it's, it's kind of, you know, the uh, 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 dead end of the, the, the Baltic. It's not geography, it's not climate, it's, it's, it's something else that explains why a society is wealthy. And it's this something else that I, I, I want to sort of start to explore with you. Um, now, you rather cleverly said um, the way that a country a way a country's government works. Um, that, that, that was a very revolutionary idea about 300 years ago. There was an, an English philosopher. If you really want to impress your parents or teachers and, and say you've been to the Mississippi Leadership Academy, um, quote, quote, quote Thomas Hobbes to them, because this English philosopher Thomas Hobbes was the first man who really understood that the reason why some societies are richer than others is because of the way they organise themselves what today we would call the political economy. I don't think he ever used the word the political economy, but he, he understood this idea that the way you organize yourself as a society explains how wealthy you become. Up until that point, it had all been attributed to divine intervention, divine providence. If you had a good harvest, people would say it's because you sacrificed enough goats. If you had a bad harvest and people starved, they would say it's because you hadn't sacrificed enough goats. Hobbes comes along and he introduces this radical idea that the way in which a country organizes itself determines how successful it is. Um, I'm now going to show you a second graph. Okay. Now, this isn't any one country. This is the whole world. This is the whole world. And this is the wealth per person. Again, it's per person. Going back to the year that Jesus was born. Now, no one actually knows for certain what the... GDP per capita was in 400 AD. I mean, you know, most people in Europe have forgotten how to read and write by then. Um, but Angus Madison, this very famous economist, produces, he's dedicated his life to producing this graph, basically, where he calculated the output per person. Um, and, and I think it's worth 
before we get into the free market and what explains the creation of wealth, I, I think it's worth spending a bit of time with this. Well, what do you think is the most striking thing about this graph? Anyone? Global wealth has exploded in the last two centuries. Yeah. We were all poor until very recently. <laughs> until very, very recently. Um, we were dirt poor. And I think this is something that, that we lose sight of. You, you probably you know your parents. You may well know your parents' parents. You may even know your parents' parents' parents. If you go back to your parents' 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 parents and land somewhere in the early 19th century, those people would be, I mean, first of all, they would be pretty impressed to see you, I'm sure, <laughs> but they would be pretty stunned. They would be pretty stunned at the way you live your life today. The fact that you could get in a horseless carriage, travel um, for hundreds of miles and be here and talk to people on the other side of the planet, hopefully with the Zoom technology works okay this morning, they would be, they'd be absolutely stunned. I think probably the thing they'd be most stunned about if you could meet your parents, 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 is the fact that you took Saturday off at all. Because the world they lived in, you had to work every hour that God gave you. In fact, the church insisted people took the Sabbath off. Um, but every other hour of every other day, from dawn to dusk, you would have been out working in order to just generate enough food to carry on living. And that was in a good year. Often in Europe in bad years, people didn't generate enough food to survive. And as in Ireland and places, the population went down. So the point I'm trying to make to you is that how a society organizes itself drives the wealth in it. And the successful way of organizing a society has only happened very, very, very recently, remarkably recently. This, this creation of wealth is exceptional. It's, 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 not, it's not always been this way. Um, this rapid and recent growth in, in, in wealth. What, so what, what do you think changed? What, what, any ideas as to why it is that we're so much richer than people in the past? Any, any, anyone want to guess? Technology advance, that, that, that's, that's part of it. That's part of it. Our culture in general, I feel like, has changed from like a more of a village mindset to like everybody for their own self. And you, know, you don't have as many people worried about other people. Okay, so a change in culture? Yeah. Um, communicating is coming easier, um, not just phone ones, just people being able to connect with each other. More, we're more interconnected, yeah? Yes. So we can buy and sell things and exchange ideas. Yeah, that, that helps. Well, from the timeline, you can see, like, that's a, right around where the Industrial Revolution hit. So the organization of, like, making new machines, new technology, like mm. you said, and just, like, yeah. organization of, like, a free market into, like, an organization. Getting very, very, very close. What's the most important thing that happened in 1776, round about the time this graph starts taking off? Well, actually, no, I was, I was being deliberately facetious when I said that. It wasn't just the American Revolution. It was the patenting of a steam engine by um, um, James Watt that began the Industrial Revolution. Actually, I'm being facetious. There were three or four great things that happened in 1776. Jefferson's Declaration of Independence, um, the patenting of the first steam engine in the UK, um, the Adam Smith, a very famous philosopher, published... Um, if you like the kind of the, 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 the capitalist manifesto, is a book called the, the Rise and Fall, uh, sorry, the, uh, the, the Wealth of Nations, an inquiry into the causes of the wealth of nations, 1776. 
Um, it was also actually um, the year that Edward Gibbon published The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, a bumper year for publishing, um, but I'm, I'm digressing. But it, you're right. This is about the birth of the Industrial Revolution. This is about the birth of the American Republic. This is about the beginning of this, this, this takeoff. Um, and it, it, it happens in some parts of the world before it happens in others. It happens in, I would argue, actually, the Dutch Republic, probably about 1700 here. Um, then it spreads to England. People tend to think of it, England as being the home of the Industrial Revolution. I, I actually think the Dutch got there first, but England had coal and was bigger, so um, we, our, our Industrial Revolution kind of slightly overshadowed the Dutch, who had to rely on peat um, and, and, and wind turbines. Um, there are people in America who would like to go back to that, but that's another story. Um, but you, you get this Industrial Revolution. It spreads to America, it spreads to Europe, and now you know, even, even Indonesia and Vietnam and, and, and countries um, that were um, very, very backward um, 30 years ago are taking off. So you've had this process of, of this explosion in, in, in wealth creation. Now, we still haven't actually explained what it is. I, I mean, I think better technology is part of it. Better communications is part of it. But I think maybe some of that is a consequence of this more elemental change that happens. Um, if... I'm, I'm, I'm trying to... So, so we know that the thing that makes countries wealthy is recent. We know the thing that makes countries wealthy is not uniformly spread out. Some are better at it than others. And we know the thing that makes people wealthy um, is... is we, we still haven't quite explained it. So I'm going I'm to try and get to the root of the, root of the issue with the help of a little video. And you're going to watch this video, and you might think that I've gone completely mad, because this video is about how to make a chicken sandwich, okay? <coughs> now, don't press click quite yet. Now, so all of you have made chicken sandwiches, right? No, you haven't. You've assembled the chicken sandwich. You've gone into the kitchen, and you've taken the sliced bread out of the fridge, at the bread bin, and you, you put together the raw ingredients. This video is about a guy actually making a chicken sandwich from scratch. And I want you to watch this video... And when you're watching it, imagine that this is what you had to do every time you wanted to eat. Thank <laughs> you. 
No, my favorite bit is... see him make a sandwich it take, he actually slightly cheats because although he goes to the ocean to get the salt out of the, the, the ocean I noticed he didn't actually build the airplane he, he, he used tools that other people have made but even even with that cheating it takes him six months and I don't know if it mentioned it on that it cost him $1,600 now think about that if you had to make a chicken sandwich from scratch it would cost you an enormous expense in time and money and yet today, in Jackson, someone earning the minimum wage could go to Subway and buy a better quality chicken sandwich than that for the equivalent of 20 minutes working at minimum wage. So from six months to 20 minutes, that is what free market interdependence and capitalism achieves. It, it, He's buying and selling the services of other people. When you make a chicken sandwich in your kitchen, you are buying and selling the services of people who help you along the way. You're not having to make it from scratch yourself. The reason why some countries are so much richer than others is because they're much better at allowing people to buy and sell stuff from each other, to trade things with each other, to become dependent upon each other. Poor countries are really bad at allowing people to buy and sell. They'll have a permit needed to cut someone's hair. They'll have high taxes. They'll have lots of regulations. They'll have all these things that prevent people from buying and selling off each other. So this is, this is the root cause of what explains what wealth is. Wealth isn't about how much money you have. Governments can devalue money at the drop of a hat. Wealth isn't about how many people are in work at any one point in time. Wealth is about, it's explained by the ability of people to buy and sell and exchange. It, Economists would call it specialization and exchange. You may be a barista working in a cafe. You may be a heart surgeon. You may be a lawyer. You may work in a gas station. What you're doing is specializing in one thing, heart surgery, the law, serving coffee. You're really, really good at that one thing. It's called having a job. And you then buy off other people all the things that you need. And that's what explains why countries become wealthy. The ability of people to specialize and exchange their goods and services with each other. It's, it's the key to it. Now, it also incidentally explains why imports, buying things from foreigners, is a really, really good thing. You'll often hear politicians who'll tell you, we don't want to buy off foreigners. We've got to buy local. You could, you could, you could buy everything local. If you passed a law that said you could only buy a smartphone made in Mississippi, you could do that. 
the, the smartphone would probably be the size of a brick. It would probably be clockwork. It, it, it would probably be a waiting list of six years to get it. Um, buying and selling from foreigners, Koreans and Japanese and Brits and whatever, allows you to get <coughs> things more cheaply. Um, so the point of this video is to explain that it's specialization and exchange that explains why a country is, is, is wealthy. Now, in that graph we had of the wealth of the world going back 2,000 years, the reason why it didn't change for most of that period of time is because most societies that have ever existed were, to put it bluntly, feudal. Someone with strength and political power told you what you could and couldn't do. You weren't free to buy and sell the wheat that you grew. You had to pay a large chunk of it in taxes. In, in some societies, like in, in, in pre-modern India, the jobs that you had were based on what you were born. The caste system determined who had what jobs. In, in the United States, in, in this state, until you know, just over 100 years ago, a large chunk of the population weren't able to keep the fruits of their labor. That's why societies were poor. The Great Revolution was allowing people to buy and sell freely. Um, now, I'm going to show you um, the last, sorry, the next um, graph. Okay, now this is the 50 richest states in America. And you'll, you'll all know, you know, every time you meet someone from Arkansas, they'll be sure to point it out that Mississippi is 50th out of 50. And it's, it's very simple. The reason why Mississippi is at the bottom of this list is because people are not free to buy and sell and exchange goods the way they are in other states. They're just not. We have a blizzard of regulations. A huge number of jobs in Mississippi need a permit. Taxes are too high. You try and do anything, and you need to know someone in the good old boy system in order to do it. And this is the root cause of Mississippi's problems. It's a lack of freedom and a lack of liberty. Mississippi has, in effect, had one party rule for, well, from the kind of end of the, the Civil War until probably the early Noughties. It was it was a one-party rule of Democrats. It's now kind of almost one-party rule of Republicans. But I'm not criticizing any of those parties. But if you have a lack of choice and competition in politics, you get a lazy consensus. You get an orthodoxy. You get um, the power of patronage. So people get you know it's not what you know that gets you the chicken sandwich. It's who you know, who appoints you to the board, who you know at the country club. These are the things that, that explain why, why some states aren't as successful as, as others. Now, you might say, okay, Mississippi is bottom of this list. So what we need to do is government intervention. You need either the state government or Washington, D.C. to do things to lift us up. And it's, it's a compelling and powerful thing to do at election time, to say you're going to take action you're going to get the federal government to intervene to boost whatever it is in Mississippi that you don't, you don't think is doing well enough. But until you understand the root cause of Mississippi's underperformance, this lack of economic freedom and liberty, you're only ever going to be doing, uh, you're only ever going to be tackling the symptoms. You're only ever going to be applying a, a, a Band-Aid to the, to the problem rather than healing it. Often when people say, you know, Mississippi is poor, Let's get the federal government to fix it. What they mean is let's transfer wealth. Let's take money off these states and give it to us. Now, if that worked, if that was the way of solving Mississippi's economic problems, Mississippi would be the richest state in America. Why? 
because for the past 60 years, that's exactly what's happened. Mississippi has had more wealth transfers from Washington than any other state in the Union. If that's what made a country rich, we would be, we would be booming. We all know that um, for a family, welfare dependency is a really bad thing. It robs families of pride. It robs them of self-respect. It, it puts them in a position of dependence on the government. It's like that for a state. Welfare dependence for a state is not the way to fix a state's problems. You, you've got to go deeper into the state's fundamental problems. You've got, to, you've got to answer the chicken sandwich question. What is it that's holding back this process of specialization and exchange? Um, handouts, you know, we'll talk about Medicaid. I, I'm, I'm, I don't have a particularly strong view. I see good arguments by good Republicans and good conservatives on both sides for and against Medicaid expansion. I suspect that maybe Stalin may be uh, more anti-Medicaid expansion than I am, but I'm not in favor of Medicaid expansion either. I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely ambivalent about it. But the idea that Medicaid expansion is going to fix Mississippi's fundamental health problems, it, it's just, it's, it's, it's too good to be true, and most things that are too good to be true aren't true. So I, I want to show you a little video now just to urge you a note of caution. If you're interested in public policy and you recognize Mississippi's at the bottom and you want to do something to fix Mississippi, beware of unintended consequences. This is a slightly jokey little video, but it shows that getting governments to do things to fix problems often has unintended consequences. And, and that's why it's not a straightforward case of saying Mississippi's 50th, let's get the feds involved. These are some of the things that happen when clever politicians have a clever idea to fix society and it doesn't quite work out the way. And now, great moments in unintended consequences. Part one, tree decree. The year 2019. The problem? Mexico needs trees. The solution? The Sewing Life Project, a $3.4 billion program that pays farmers to plant fruit and timber trees on barren land. Not only will this help spruce up the environment, but it will fight poverty and inequality by paying the farmers to maintain the new trees. Sounds like a great idea. With the best of intentions, what could possibly go wrong? It turns out poor farmers need money, and since standing trees didn't qualify for the program, the system incentivized farmers to cut down mature trees to make way for new ones. In one village, two-thirds of the program's participants chopped down forests to get that cash. One study found the program caused the deforestation of more than 280 square miles. But you know what they say about the best laid plants. Part two, pay care. The year, 1998. The problem? Well, technically this was a research study, but private daycare centers in Israel are tired of parents arriving late. The solution? Fine, tardy parents, a small fee for every late pickup. Sounds like a great idea. With the best of intentions, what could possibly go wrong? It turns out money isn't the only incentive, and a fine is just a price. To the surprise of the researchers, late arrivals more than doubled. The penalty, it seemed, allowed parents to ease their conscience. The shameful apology that once burdened them shifted to a simpler, legitimate cash transaction. One they were happy to pay, because honestly, ask any new parent what they wouldn't pay for an extra ten minutes of free time. Part 3. Loophole Lunch. The year, 1896. The problem? Alcohol is ruining the moral fiber of New York. 
The solution? The Rain's Law. <coughs> a bevy of rules that made it harder to open or operate drinking establishments, including a ban on the sale of alcohol on Sundays, except for hotel and lodging houses that serve drinks with complimentary meals. I mean, wealthy New Yorkers tend to dine out at ritzy hotels when their servants have the day off, so no need to ruffle their rich, upstanding, virtuous feathers. It's those poor people that are ruining everything, so yeah, stick it to them. Sounds like a terrible idea, but puritanical intentions. What could possibly go wrong? It turns out, people like drinking, even on Sundays. The ban was wildly unpopular. Almost immediately, Rain's Law Hotels were born. Basements and attics were converted into barely furnished rooms, and proprietors made deals with neighboring lodging houses. In Brooklyn, the number of registered hotels went from 13 to 800 after six months. Prostitutes and unmarried couples found the new rooms especially convenient. To fulfill the law's food requirement, bar staff invented the Rain Sandwich, an easy, simple meal that would be served with the patron's drink, but not consumed. The frequently inedible sandwich would be whisked away in seconds and quickly paired with the next order. It was not uncommon for the same sandwich to be reused for weeks. Yum! Food for naught. Great moments and unintended consequences. Good intentions, bad results. Do you know a great moment and unintended consequences? Put it in the comments. We might steal it. I mean, what? Good. My favourite in that is the um, the rain sandwich, and the reason for that is because the stupidity <coughs> of government wasn't just in 1890s. In, in in Britain during the lockdown, you had exactly that same thing. The government decided they didn't like the idea of people sitting in pubs and bars drinking because um, they might get the the COVID virus. But then they realised that um, people needed to eat, so they said you can't serve alcohol unless you're serving it with a meal. So guess what happened? People invented the perfect little micro meal to go with the drink, which just satisfied the legal requirement to serve food with the alcohol. I mean, the, 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 the laws of unintended consequences are, are consistent and universal. Um, now, the reason why I wanted to flag up unintended consequences is because it's so easy when you consider you know, the health crisis in Mississippi, and there is a health crisis in Mississippi, to say, why don't we just do X? Why don't we just mandate more federal dollars? Why don't we just do something? Um, I, I want you to have a, a, a healthy skepticism. Whenever you hear a politician promising an easy solution, ask yourself, what is it that would be the unintended consequences of that? Um, another, another one that wasn't shown on the video, but another one of my favorites is, is rent control. This comes up in major cities in Europe and America Every 10 or 15 years, there'll be a city somewhere where there are lots of young people who can't afford to rent housing. So what a politician will do to get their vote is say, I'm going to cap the price of rent. So guess what happens? What, what do you think happens? If I, if I was to say no landlord in Jackson, Mississippi could increase their rent, what do you think would happen? Would the price of rent remain low and there'd be lots of happy young tenants? What do you think might happen? The, the landlords, you've got inflation of what, 5% a year? The landlord is not allowed to increase their rent, even if you allowed them to increase their rent, they, they <laughs> might decide it's, it's not worth it. Um, and they would sell. And you would get 
a collapse in the number of available rental properties, and so the market price for rent would go up even higher. This is exactly what's happening in London today. It's exactly what's happened in Dublin and Ireland. Um, every, every 15 or 20 years, this, this happens. I mention this to really emphasize this point about unintended consequences, because a, a good conservative public policymaker should always, always, always ask the question, what might the unintended consequences be? Um, it's particularly true in a state like Mississippi, where there isn't often an effective opposition. And if you can dress something up as being a conservative solution, people will start cheering for it, often without really thinking through what that means in the real world. So as conservatives, we should be naturally skeptical of any great idea with good intentions. We should always say, what, what, what can possibly go wrong?